Hello, friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com. Before we take you to your favorite Sports History Network show, just want to tell you a little bit about some merch that you can pick up that represents your favorite SHN podcast. So far, there's t-shirts, coffee mugs, and even books from some of the authors that do podcasts right here on SHN. Who could buy something better than that than have the history right from the, the gentleman that you hear talking about it? But we also are adding things each and every day. And where's that store, may you ask? Well, it's at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. Up at the top, there is the SHN. HN merch button. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store and you can be representing your favorite podcast and show the world that, hey, on the swag that I'm using, it's the headquarters of Sports Yesteryear, Sports History Network, and my favorite podcaster, the Sports History Network store. Shop there today. Do you know the distance between them two schools? West Virginia uh, is one of those those uh, games that we rode buses to. Those were tough games because they were something. Um, they were like the uh, the new the first version of of Philadelphia Eagle fans. <laughs> yeah, it was bad back then. I remember after we that maybe that particular year we couldn't move our buses because uh, one one of them had crawled up on our bus, and so we had to wait on the police who sent dogs up under there <laughs> and got him from up under the bus. <laughs> Welcome to Hidden Yardage. I'm your host, Joe Moore. This podcast is a journey back to the 1980 college football season through the memories of those that played, coached, and covered it. New episodes released each week will carry listeners through that season one week at a time. For more information, please visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. If this is your first time listening, you may want to go back and start with Episode 1. This is Episode 7, Through Fair and Stormy Weather. The first forward pass in the history of college football is full of controversy. Reported by none other than John Heisman, the story goes that a fullback for the University of North Carolina was set to punt from his own end zone late in a game against Georgia in 1895. As the Bulldogs players rushed him, he flung the watermelon-shaped ball forward, and it fell into the waiting arms of his teammate, who raced 70 yards for a game-winning touchdown. Georgia's coach, Glenn Pop Warner, protested the score since forward passes were illegal, but the official allowed the play to stand because, he said, he didn't see it. Thus, the first forward pass also gave birth to another longstanding tradition in college football, blind referees. Ten years later, the forward pass was still outlawed. At that time, football was an unforgiving ground assault designed to allow young men to play war games. But just like real combat, college football in the early 1900s had its own casualties. In 1905, 18 people died playing football, and there was growing public pressure to make the game safer or to ban it completely. President Theodore Roosevelt, whose own son was on the freshman squad at Harvard, leaned on the game's leaders to adopt rule changes. 
Representatives from dozens of schools met to discuss ways to open the game up so that teams weren't massed so closely together in meat-grinding scrums that trampled and crushed players. They outlawed the flying wedge, created a neutral zone between the offense and the defense, and allowed teams to move the ball using the forward pass. But the rules were so restrictive, none of the major powers embraced the new aerial tactics. Passes could not be thrown over the line of scrimmage from five yards on either side of the center. An incomplete pass resulted in a five-yard penalty, and if a pass fell to the ground without being touched, possession went to the other team. The first legal pass was completed in September by St. Louis, and more newspapers took note a month later when Wesleyan completed a pass against Yale. But it was in 1907 when the forward pass revealed its true identity in the college game, that of the great equalizer. The Carlisle Indian Industrial School shared little in common with its fellow football powerhouse programs. Founded as the first federally funded off-reservation Indian boarding school, the institution was meant to Americanize the young men that it housed. Enrollees had their names changed and their hair cut upon arrival. U.S. Army General Richard Henry Pratt had a saying about the school's mission, kill the Indian, save the man. But for all the controversy that the school is remembered by today, there is no debate that the Carlisle Indians embraced the game of football. Using guile and innovation, the small school from Pennsylvania outthought and outcompeted its Ivy League rivals and was the first team to popularize the forward pass. In 1907, Carlisle began its season 5-0, outscoring opponents 148-11 before traveling to Philadelphia to challenge the unbeaten and unscored upon University of Pennsylvania. On the game's second play, the Indians completed a long pass to set up their first touchdown. They would complete eight passes on the day, including one by freshman Jim Thorpe, and routed the Quakers 26-6. Headlines in the major newspapers lauded their approach, and Carlisle would again mystify onlookers with their darting spirals the next week in a victory over Harvard. The clever offense was invented and taught by the team's head coach, Pop Warner same man that had so vehemently protested the first forward pass by North Carolina against his own team in 1895. In 1913, a small Catholic school from the Midwest named Notre Dame traveled to West Point and upset the cadets 35-13. In the first quarter, Newt Rockney caught a 40-yard bomb to take a 7-0 lead. It was the most famous pass in American history since George Washington said no thanks to a third term. The New York Times wrote that Notre Dame, quote, flashed the most sensational football that has been seen in the East this year. But despite the success of early adopters, in the decades to come, the game of football would revert back to its roots. Both professionally and in the college ranks, coaches preferred to run the ball, and successive new offensive systems like the single wing, the T formation, the wishbone, and the power eye all focused heavily on moving the ball via the ground. But some offensive minds of the 1970s and 80s had their heads stuck in the clouds. Daryl Davis was known by everybody as Mouse. He played football at tiny Oregon College of Education in Monmouth and was undersized by most standards at 5'6 and 160 pounds. During his first coaching job in the 1950s, Mouse was using an eye formation, copying the popular offenses of the day at the big-time schools. But he didn't have big-time players, and he was looking for a system that would help his athletes have success. He got his hands on a book written by an Ohio high school football coach named Tiger Ellison called run-and-shoot football, offense of the future. It changed his life. The book described an offensive system dreamed up by Ellison to take advantage of the open space on the field and to make playing offense more fun. 
Mouse kept the name and made it even more pass-heavy. In his run-and-shoot formation, both ends are split, and the halfbacks line up in the gaps off-tackle. The receivers don't run set routes. Instead, they react to what the defensive backs are doing and then make their breaks. The quarterback makes the same judgment and anticipates where his receivers will be. The goal is to make the defense the last to know where the football is going. Mouse employed this offense to great success in high school and then joined the college ranks at tiny Portland State University in the 1970s. He turned the fortunes of that program around with record-setting quarterback play, first by June Jones, and then starting in 1978 with Neil Lomax. There's a two-hour video on YouTube where Mouse Davis explains his run-and-shoot offense in front of a chalkboard while wearing a 90s windbreaker jacket. The whole two hours sounds like this. There's nothing come. As he comes up, he sees the free safety come out of the hole. He now picks a man, in this case, the strong safety that's on him, drives up, gets him turned, and snaps it across his face. Mouse would spread his run-and-shoot gospel to other contrarian coaches, like Hal Mummy, who would become one of the founders of the air raid offense. In 1980, Mouse and other coaches, mostly out west, were part of a revolution. Passing records were falling every week as teams like BYU, Cal, and Portland State assaulted the record books with regularity. The 1980 season had seen an increase in passing from 30.5% to 32.7% of all offensive plays, the greatest single-season jump since 1965. Some coaches attribute changes to blocking rules that allowed offensive linemen to use their hands as a reason for the new emphasis in throwing the ball. But they also cited an influx of coaches from the NFL and more highly skilled freshman players arriving ready to play. But ultimately, teams were passing for the same reason that Carlisle did back in 1907. It's a way for smaller schools to compete with traditional powers that have a monopoly on the big, strong players. Eventually, defenses would react by putting smaller, faster players on the field. But for now, in 1980, offenses like the run and shoot had made it open season on the scoreboard. Lavelle Edwards took over as head coach of the BYU Cougars in 1972, after 10 years on the sidelines as a defensive assistant. He may have seemed an unlikely candidate to embrace a wide-open passing attack, but in his decade of preparing his players to face the opposition, he remembered the hardest ones to game plan for were the ones that threw the ball. He also felt that signing players for a quick-paced, airborne offense would be easier, since there was less competition for those kinds of recruits among the bigger schools. The first four years of Edwards' tenure were only moderately successful, but in 1976, he made a key acquisition, and Utah welcomed its greatest import since Joseph Smith. Doug Scoville joined the Cougars' offensive staff in 1976, after a career that had seen him coach Bob Lee and Roger Stahl back in college before serving as an assistant for the San Francisco 49ers. When San Francisco's head coach was fired, Scoville was unable to land a gig for another NFL team, so he looked to go back to college where Edwards was waiting with an offer. He handed the playbook to Scoville and told him that he could do whatever he wanted with it. BYU hadn't looked back since. Prior to Scoville's arrival, the Cougars had never won more than eight games in a season and had won only two conference titles. Since the day he stepped foot on campus, they captured four straight conference crowns and never won fewer than nine games. BYU's complicated passing attack had led the country three out of four years, the only exception was the year Scoville was on sabbatical with the Chicago Bears. In 1980, the Cougars' junior quarterback Jim McMahon was another in a long line of prolific Cougar signal callers. He was from Utah but raised Catholic. He'd hoped to go to Notre Dame, but the Irish didn't recruit him. 
so he went to Provo to play for Edwards. McMahon wore special glasses off the field, since when he was a boy, he was attempting to untie his shoe with a fork and accidentally stabbed himself in the right eye. But his limited vision did not limit his ability to hit wide-open receivers in Scoville's offense. In his system, freshman quarterbacks played junior varsity for a year and then were redshirted to give them time to learn the playbook. Receivers had to know the routes of their teammates as well as their own, and Scoville would rotate two wide receivers on every play to keep them fresh. The strategy had worked nearly to perfection in 1980. After dropping their season opener, BYU responded by winning four straight and posting some gaudy offensive numbers. McMahon entered Week 7's game at Utah with four straight 300-yard games, one shy of the NCAA record held by Mark Wilson, the previous season's BYU quarterback. Here's the late Lavelle Edwards talking about McMahon on BYU Sports Network in 2014. I think Jim was a very popular player here, and uh, he, what he, he just a, a great leader. He's uh, he's also, you know, he's also very accomplished. Uh, he's uh, a great arm, you know, and for a guy that was, uh, uh, you know, had some partial vision in one eye and. He could see the field and 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 knew where everybody was. I mean, he could look at a. He could be rolling out and and seeing what the strong safety does that you know for the opposing team, and he would know exactly where everybody else was covered and let her were and uh, from a defensive standpoint. And he'd just stop and turn around and throw and throw it and just just that uncanny innate uh, feel and ability that he had to. Uh, uh, know the offense to throw it, and then, of course, he was very accurate. During their early season winning streak in 1980, the Cougars averaged 40 points per game, and that number would only go up as they hit their stride during the back half of the schedule. Against Utah State, McMahon and company would surpass that number by halftime on their way to a 70-46 to win. The game's first play was a 76-yard touchdown pass for BYU, one of six scoring strikes by McMahon. The 70 points were the most ever scored by the Cougars, and McMahon set or tied NCAA records for passing yards in a half, consecutive games over 300 yards, and total offense in two consecutive games. The performance would earn him the Sports Illustrated Player of the Week, and he would go on to set a total of 32 passing records during the 1980 season, when he finished fifth in the Heisman voting. The Cougars would not lose again in 1980, including one of the greatest bowl wins of all time against SMU in the Holiday Bowl. The victory over Utah State was one to remember for McMahon, but an ugly incident in the fourth quarter overshadowed his record-setting day. BYU was flagged 22 times during the game, and after umpire John Berlelfi called an unnecessary roughness penalty on Cougar linebacker Junior Filiaga, the player snapped. He punched the official with a solid right hand and then continued to pummel him on the ground until he was pulled away and the benches cleared. Afterwards, Filiaga would be suspended for the remainder of the 1980 and 1981 seasons. Across the country in western Pennsylvania, the Pitt Panthers and their third-ranked passing offense in the country would trade blows in the annual grudge match known as the Backyard Brawl. The campuses of Pittsburgh and West Virginia are separated by only 76 miles on Interstate 79. The two schools started playing each other in 1895, when Pittsburgh was still called the Western University of Pennsylvania. Their 1921 matchup was the first college football game to be broadcast on the radio. In 1979, the Panthers beat the Mountaineers in the last ever game at Old Mountaineer Field, their fourth straight win in the series. The 1980 game would be at Pitt Stadium, 
with both teams looking to rebound from a loss the week before. West Virginia was 4-2 and in head coach Don Nealon's first year on the sidelines. Nealon took the job after coaching quarterbacks at Michigan for Bo Schembechler, and he had a good one in Morgantown in junior Oliver Luck. Luck would eventually graduate from West Virginia holding nearly all of its passing records, but he was battling back from a concussion suffered the week before in a loss to Hawaii. When asked what he would do if Luck wouldn't be ready to play on Saturday against the Panthers, Nealon joked, If he's not ready, I'm not coming. The Mountaineers knew they had a monumental task in front of them. Pitt was clearly the more talented team, but this game was a test of its resolve. After having its air of invincibility shattered the week before at Florida State, would the Panthers be angry or uninterested? In the first quarter, Luck moved his team down the field against Pitt's defense and lofted a pass over the head of free safety Ricky Tricano for an early 7-0 lead. It was an ominous beginning for the 11th-ranked Panthers. Things would go from bad to worse when later in the first quarter, Dan Marino was walking off the field after throwing what he thought was a game-tying touchdown pass. The referees conferred and determined that his receiver had come down out of bounds, but as they signaled incomplete, Marino was 30 yards upfield, lying on the turf, surrounded by trainers. His knee had given out as he'd walked to the pit sidelines, and he would miss the rest of the game. Backup quarterback Danny Daniels came on in relief to finish the drive with a touchdown. He was ineffective on his team's next possession, and coach Jackie Sherrill opted to punt on third down and send Daniels to the bench. He had a secret weapon, a quarterback that had won 17 games for him the previous two seasons, but was now lined up at free safety, the same man that had been burned for a touchdown earlier in the game, Ricky Tricano. Our backup quarterback uh, was Ricky Tricano, and Ricky came to me in the spring and said, Coach, I want to play safety. He had been our starting quarterback until Danny came in and and started. And Danny, excuse me, Danny was a sophomore, not a junior, sophomore. And Danny came in, and, and Ricky hurt his knee his freshman year, uh, Danny's freshman year, and Danny came in and played and started the rest of the year. And then... Rick came to me in the spring and said, Coach, I want to play free safety because of Danny being the quarterback. And I said, Ricky, I'll let you play free safety, but if you're an average free safety, then you're going back to quarterback. And during spring practice, I mean, he he was outstanding. He was a, a great athlete anyway. And uh, I Coaches, especially our offensive coaches, really said, Coach, you can't do that. You know, we don't have anybody. And I said, well, I just did. The kid deserves to be on the field and play. And and so we we did that. And I practiced him one day a week in in, in pads. I mean, in, in, as a quarterback, practice one day a week. And Danny gets hurt hurts his knee, and I told Ricky to go change pads uh, quarter, uh, into his quarterback shoulder pads, and he kind of come up, came up to me and he said, Coach, now, if I go play quarterback, uh, you know, the deal is you're going to leave me at quarterback, right? And I started laughing because we had a great relationship, and I said, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's the deal. Of course, I didn't have any choice at that time, but – Anyway, Ricky came in, and we actually alternated 
Ricky and Danny. And Danny threw for 1,600 yards, 15 touchdowns. And Ricky threw for 1,400 yards, 11 touchdowns. Matter of fact, Ricky had a better completion record than Danny did. And we had uh, Danny threw 15 touchdowns and Ricky threw 11. So, you know, Danny's year, even though he was All-American, his sophomore year, people really don't realize that he only played half the year, meaning he didn't play every, every snap. Tricano had been the third-leading passer in school history before Marino supplanted him. But that was then, before he was a starting free safety, before he played defense. Now, in the middle of the game against one of the school's biggest rivals, with the Panthers looking vulnerable after flaming out in Tallahassee the week before, Tricano would need to regain his former quarterbacking savvy to rally his team and save the season. The Midwest is called Flyover America but it's certainly not for its propensity for the forward pass. While the West Coast's passing influence had creeped into a few Eastern campuses, the Big Ten seemed immune to the spread of new offensive ideas. But two coaches from the Pac-10 were hoping to change that. First, Jim Young left the Arizona Wildcats to coach at Purdue and brought in a tall, drop-back passer named Mark Herman from Carmel, Indiana. Herman had started at quarterback since his freshman year and was touted as one of the true stars of the 1980 season. His Heisman hopes and his team's top 10 preseason ranking went up in smoke when he injured his thumb the week before the Boilermakers' season opening game against Notre Dame, but he was still breaking passing records while leading Purdue to a 4-2 record. Then, Mike White, who coached at Cal and for Bill Walsh in the 49ers, took over in Champaign for the University of Illinois. Rather than recruit a high school quarterback to fit his pass-happy system, White looked for junior college transfers and found several, including Dave Wilson. The story of how Wilson got to Illinois is unbelievable, but I'll save that until episode 10. Wilson and Herman were conspicuous among their Big Ten peers for their passing acumen and their coach's willingness to let them throw. Now, in week seven, they met on the same field in Champaign, with both teams unbeaten in conference play. The more than 62,000 fans that packed Memorial Stadium were about to witness the greatest passing performance in Big Ten history one that would make the galloping ghost sit up in his grave. Herman and Purdue came out firing and quickly built a 17-0 lead on their first three possessions. Part of the reason for the early success was Herman's ability to diagnose the Illinois defense at the line of scrimmage and get his team in the right call to take advantage of it. We went out to Illinois with the the plan of uh, just going to the line of scrimmage. I'd call call check with me uh, in the huddle and we'd just go to the line and I could read their coverages because you know when when their strong safety was head up on the tight end they were going to be man to man and then when he was out wider they were going to play zone so I would I'd go up there to the line and and, uh, look at their coverage and I'd be able to distinguish whether it be man or zone and you know if they're man I'd go to our man calls and if they're zone and I'd, I'd audible to our our zone pass plays. The Purdue quarterback was a blistering 14 of 18 for 219 yards and two touchdowns in the first half. Wilson, to his credit, had 11 completions in the first half, but for just 82 yards, as the Illini could get no closer than the Boilermakers' 34-yard line. Purdue kept its foot on the pedal as the second half began with another quick touchdown drive to make it 24 to nothing. That's when Mike White decided to unleash Wilson, and Illinois went from being stuck in neutral to supersonic, 
A 77-yard touchdown bomb to Mike Martin got the Illini on the scoreboard. And just one minute later, a second Wilson touchdown pass cut the lead to 24-14. Not to be outdone, Herman answered with his own barrage, throwing two touchdown passes in four minutes, including a 20-yard pass into the back of the end zone on fourth down. The score was now 38-14 in favor of Purdue, with just over eight minutes to play. Herman had set a new Big Ten passing record for yards in a game with 371, on 24 of 35 passing with four touchdowns. With the game seemingly in hand, he sat on the bench to enjoy his day's work. But Wilson kept throwing. He led his team on another 80-yard scoring drive, and after Purdue tacked on a final score, he managed to throw another 14 passes in the final four minutes. Herman was the Big Ten record holder when he threw his final pass, but when the game ended, he was in second place. Wilson had rewritten the record books for the second time in a quarter, finishing with 425 yards on 35 of 58 passing. His attempts and completions were also new conference records. Here's how the two quarterbacks remember that back and forth ending. First Herman, then Wilson. You're playing and you don't realize what's happening from a record standpoint. Maybe somebody mentioned it to me, but, uh, you know, it's just going out and and playing the game and then you you worry about those things afterwards. So, um, you know, obviously he wasn't in the the best of moods because it was a pretty lopsided game, but, uh, yeah, certainly – he was very happy with uh, with that record. So, um, yeah, that it was just kind of an ironic twist uh, at the end of that game. You know, when we talked after the game, not during, obviously, but it was it was kind of I do remember that because they were announcing it over the PA system. You know, Mark Herman just broke the Big Ten record for most yards in a game, and then I remember throwing a pass, and I said Dave Wilson just broke, and so the people were just like cheering and going crazy on it was that was I do remember that day that was a lot of fun even though you know the score didn't show it for us but it was still exciting the two quarterbacks combined for 796 yards also a Big Ten record Herman was now just 72 yards away from becoming the all-time leader in NCAA passing history he would capture that record the next week against Michigan State and finish his career having thrown for more yards than any player in history This record would last longer than a quarter, as it wasn't until four years later when it was finally surpassed by a Boston College quarterback named Doug Flutie. For Wilson, the best was yet to come, as he would obliterate his own record just three weeks later against Ohio State. Ricky Tricano was not looking to set any records, as he trotted onto the field in relief of injured star Dan Marino. He just wanted to help his team win against their rival West Virginia in the backyard brawl. His first pass was dropped by Dwight Collins, but he would complete his next eight in a row for 138 yards and two touchdowns. The Pitt defense harassed Mountaineer quarterback Oliver Luck. It forced two fumbles that were both turned into Panthers touchdowns as part of a 28-point second-quarter blitz. Hugh Green remembers thinking that the defense had a responsibility to help its teammate as he moved from safety to quarterback. We turned the notch up. We knew, you know, with Dan at that time, and we didn't know, you know, where it's held that, that, okay, if we're going to finish up this year, we're going to have to give Ricky some help. Leading 35-7 at halftime, Pitt had no problem closing out the Mountaineers and felt no guilt about punishing their rivals. In the fourth quarter, ahead by 21 points, Pitt called for a trick play, a 50-yard halfback pass that worked to make the final score 42-14. Above the lopsided score, the stadium's message board flashed, 
a coal miner's slaughter. The Mountaineers would limp to a 6-6 finish before stringing together three straight nine-win seasons. The Panthers were also limping, but it was only their quarterback that was lame. Marino had a sprained knee and would not be able to play in next week's game in Knoxville against Tennessee. But Pitt would bring with it the country's toughest defense and the best quarterback playing free safety in America. Around the country in Week 7, the second-ranked USC Trojans were humbled by a 7-7 tie against the Oregon Ducks. That's it. The game is over. The Oregon fans are plotting the tie. And they well should. This is a great team. I mean, they I should say a great game. The team played as well as it can with being so well battered from the previous games of the season. And you must say they played super, and you must reassess the Trojans and say there's some questions on offense and just how things are going. The only ranked teams to lose were numbers 17, 18, and 20. Iowa State, Miami, and Stanford, respectively. At South Carolina, George Rogers earned his 17th straight 100-yard game as he eclipsed 1,000 yards for the third season in a row. Herschel Walker exploded for a new Georgia record, 283 yards against Vanderbilt, after missing the team's previous game against Ole Miss. The two best backs in all of college football were on a collision course for November 1st in Athens, when the irresistible force would meet the immovable object with everything on the line. Next week on Hidden Yardage, the story of the 1980 college football season. Southern Miss gets ranked for the first time in school history, but it may be short-lived as it finds itself matched up with number one Alabama. Southern Mississippi now really souped up, fourth down in inches. The Golden Eagles saying, we're gonna do it. They're saying, we're gonna stop you, Alabama. Fourth down in inches, let's find out. The keep by Jacobs, first down, at the quarterback to the 15, he's to the five, he's got a touchdown, Alabama leads, six to nothing. Undefeated Texas battles SMU for Southwestern Conference supremacy, and Jackie Sherrill has some tricks up his sleeve as the Pitt Panthers head to Knoxville to take on their old head coach, Johnny Majors, and the Volunteers. The Hidden Yardage podcast is researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Moore. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. For a list of everybody that appeared in this episode and special acknowledgments, visit the website at www.hiddenyardagepodcast.com. There you'll find a full transcript of every show, as well as schedules, stats, and standings from the 1980 season. Please email your questions and comments to me at joe at hiddenyardagepodcast.com. This podcast is made possible through Moonlight Magic Productions. Thank you for listening. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude. And I hope that you enjoyed this recent episode presented by the Sports History Network and were able to learn some good old-fashioned sports history knowledge nuggets. I started the Sports History Network back in 2020 with the mission to help podcasters find a community of like-minded sports history nerds as well as helping aspiring podcasters to start their own shows. We have a little bit over 30 shows on the network right now covering all sorts of sports history, but as far as I'm concerned, we're just at the toothpick in the ocean moment, you know, that can't even figure it out because there's so much more coming. We wanted to create the ultimate headquarters for sports yesteryear, starting with Podcast Network and our website, but we're going to continue to move into other mediums as well. And here's the cool part, because we want you to be part of our team. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, or maybe being a guest on one of our shows, Or who knows, maybe even writing an article for us over on the website. Seriously, all you got to do is reach out to us on the contact page over at sportshistorynetwork.com. 
You can be as technologically savvy as a Neanderthal tapping on a stone trying to figure out this whole hieroglyphics thing back in the day. Again, it doesn't matter because even if you don't understand the whole podcast space, we have a production team that can pretty much help you out with doing everything. All you got to do, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com, head to the contact page, fill it out. That message goes right to me and I'll reach out to you as soon as I can. But for now, dude, I'm through if you're through.